Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and their families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of lung disease, severe critical illness, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. Our goal is to help you stay informed in order to take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Respiratory Inspirations. I'm your host, Ryde Wake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and my guest today is Dr. Maeve McMurdo, who directs the Occupational Lung Disease Program at the clinic, and this is the topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Maeve. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with the, with the basics. Uh, what do we mean when we are talking about occupational lung disease? What are we talking about here? So, good question. And the answer is, it's really a pretty broad category. We think about things that are directly work-related, so things like black lung, we might have heard about, or silicosis. And then we think about things that are kind of more incidentally work-related, things like occupational asthma, asthma that's kind of made worse or triggered by the job and the things you're exposed to. But really, almost anything can be an occupational lung disease. And it's actually pretty hard sometimes to figure out what is and what isn't, which is why I exist in the first place. Yeah, so it's really, I I know we talked about in other forums that there's so many things you could expose to at the work that become, you know, really a source of occupational lung disease. Can this be treated? You know, what do you do if somebody has occupational lung disease? You know, one, maybe start with how you diagnose it. How do you know that somebody has occupational lung disease? And then we can move to, is this treatable? Yeah. So in terms of diagnosis, a lot of it really depends on the history. So when you see an occupational lung disease provider, what we're going to spend a lot of time doing is really asking you about all the jobs you've worked, not just your current job, but the jobs you used to work, things you did part-time during high school, really trying to get a full sense of the things that you're exposed to, both in the environment when you're growing up and then currently. We're going to ask about things like what kind of masks you wear, what kind of tasks you do, what your job actually really means. Because often we say a job title and it's really not actually all that clear what that job title actually involves doing. So we're gonna spend a lot of time talking. We're also probably gonna get breathing tests, looking for how your lungs actually function. Potentially a CAT scan or imaging of the lungs to kind of get a sense of what's going on inside your lungs. And then sometimes more invasive testing like a biopsy to really get a sense of what's going on in the lungs itself. Once we have all that, we piece it together and make the diagnosis of occupational lung disease or not. And a lot of it really does, though, hinge on your exposure history and kind of that first question about what you do for work and where you were exposed. So it's a process. Yeah, it looks like very extensive, which makes sense. But so if you are a patient, and as you know, this is directed at patients and family members. So you're a patient or a family member who suspects, how to suspect even in the first place, you know, what kind of symptoms, what kind of, what things can people think about when to to wonder whether they have occupational lung disease or not? It's tricky because it can be really, really subtle. So when you think about people who are working, often they're pretty active and they're pretty healthy and people don't want to complain and people often ignore kind of mild symptoms. But a lot of occupational lung diseases are going to start with things like feeling a little bit short of breath, having a cough, having wheezing, A really important clue for things like occupational asthma, so asthma which is triggered by your job, is that the symptoms get worse when you're at work. And if you stay on vacation or away from work for a long time, they get better again. Or they get worse when you're doing a certain task at work. Say you're a welder, but you don't weld all the time. On days when you weld, you feel really, really short of breath. 
on days when you're not welding, say you're in the office, you feel pretty good. That's a big clue for me as a provider that it could be occupational lung disease. A big thing when you're thinking about occupational lung disease and being worried about it is screening. So screening basically means looking for occupational lung disease early, trying to catch it before it has symptoms. So we can potentially remove people from exposure, potentially treat it. A lot of workplaces where workers are exposed to things that we know can cause occupational lung disease are going to offer screening for the job. And that screening can be things like a chest X-ray, breathing tests, or again, a history. And so one of the best ways people who are worried about occupational lung disease, if their work offers screening, is to actually take part in that screening and see what that shows. Because that screening's a really valuable and really useful first tool to point to early signs that could indicate occupational lung disease. Can a patient on their own reduce their risk of occupational lung disease? Are there th- certain things uh, one can do if you work in a, you know you work in an area where there's an exposure, is there a way to reduce your risk? Again, it's tricky and it depends on what the exposure actually is. So for a lot of things, we think about things like wearing PPE, personal protective equipment. So that's things like a mask, like a respirator. And for a lot of the chemicals that you work with, there'll be a, what we call an SDS, a safety data sheet, which tells you kind of what the risks are, what the chemical exposure can cause, whether it can cause things like eye irritation, like shortness of breath, where it can cause long-term risks. Those can be really helpful. There's also guidance on the OSHA, so the Occupational Safety and Health Administration website for patients of workers who are exposed to things, talking about kind of at a more lay level what the risks are from exposure to the job and what kind of symptoms they should watch out for and what kind of testing they might need. So if patients are concerned, that OSHA website is actually a really good first resource because it has a lot of information. A lot of these are individuals, like the individual can wear PPE, can uh, read the SDS, but companies, I think, also have a responsibility to do some engineering, you know, uh, exposure controls, like industrial engineering. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. So the most important thing by far is actually really what the company does. So individuals can do a lot, but the reality is that by far we know the most effective way to prevent occupational lung disease is things like engineering controls or more general controls like not using a risky substance. And so the challenge is obviously as an individual worker, you don't have a lot of say in what your company does or doesn't do. But when we're thinking about good practices, those engineering controls are really, really important. And the other thing is obviously following the engineering controls. So personally, I mean, I've done things myself where I haven't worn the right equipment or I've been a little bit lazy. <laughs> and it's very easy to kind of, again, find shortcuts. But it's really important that if there are engineering controls in place, that you don't try and find a workaround. Yeah. That's a great point because you can see people kind of half wearing their PPE, kind of have it on, but not really appropriately. And that's kind of almost like not having it on. Every time I do home construction projects, my husband makes fun of me because I have my my glasses on my head, <laughs> which doesn't really work. They've got to be covering your eyes or else I don't do anything. There's no protection there, <laughs> yes. yeah. So you mentioned screening. I'm going to go back to that. You know, that screening, why is it important? You know, how does it work and why is it important? So screening is really important because the goal of screening is to catch things early. Basically, for a lot of these occupational lung diseases, things like silicosis, like coal, like beryllium and chronic brain disease, there's sort of what we call a precursor phase, where workers may not have symptoms, but may have signs on testing of early disease. If we can catch that disease early, we can potentially remove workers from exposure, so take them out of the workplace or change their role so they're not exposed to that compound anymore. And by doing that, we can potentially either prevent disease or slow down progression, so basically improve health outcomes. So screening is a really important way to again catch that 
earlier disease rather than waiting till it's really, really late. Because if we wait till it's really, really late and people have severe symptoms, our treatment options are a lot more limited at that standpoint. And that screening, I think, can individuals screen themselves or usually this is, again, the responsibility of their of the employer and the uh, company to do that? So OSHA mandates that employees of a certain size offer screening. And so if your employer is not offering screening, it's something that you may want to look into, again, whether they're required to. Obviously, you can always talk to your primary care doctor or see an occupational pulmonologist, and patients are welcome to come and be seen if they have concerns. But for a lot of these workplaces, again, screening is a requirement, and it varies by standard. Again, it's a place where the OSHA website can be really helpful in terms of looking in and seeing what is actually required. In a way, you're kind of starting to answer my next question is, what can a patient do? Like, you know, if they suspect they have exposure or they know they have exposure, what are the things that they can do, either one, to minimize the risk, protect themselves, or like see somebody who can help them with those things? So what do you recommend? So I think the first thing first is obviously see your primary care, see your sort of general pulmonologist and say, look, I'm concerned. They can often get a lot of the initial testing that we need, things like an X-ray, like breathing tests, to at least get a baseline. As an occupational pulmonologist, it's really helpful if when patients come to see me, they know what they're exposed to or they know what they're concerned about. So if they're doing a job which is a little bit more unusual or there's a compound they're exposed to that they're worried about, bringing in that safety data sheet or bringing in as much information as they can about what they actually do is really helpful. And then obviously, if you're concerned and your provider's concerned, a referral to an occupational pulmonologist, someone like me who specialises in occupational lung disease, is a good way to really get more clear-cut answers and some guidance about what to do moving forward. So what would an occupational lung disease specialist, like uh, what would you do that uh, a general pulmonologist or a general practitioner does not? I think the big difference is really just a lot more digging into the history and then a lot of research. So if you bring me a compound that I don't know about, I can take the time to go in and kind of research and figure out, again, what the exposures have been, what the risks are, and try and summarize that for you. And so it's kind of a combination of more history, more digging and then potentially more testing and potentially more invasive testing, things like a biopsy, like a CAT scan, to really try and dig into the details and get to the bottom of this. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. So like we talked about exposure, we talked about screening, we talked about referral. What about treatment? Is there anything, are there any specific treatments for occupational lung disease beyond just removing an individual from exposure? So I think when people think about occupational lung disease, one of the big kind of scary things and reason people sometimes don't want to get screened is there's a sense that there really aren't any treatments. There's nothing you can do about it, which is scary. And the reality is it's not actually the case. So some occupational lung diseases are treatable. There are some which are inflammatory, things like occupational asthma, things like chronic brilling disease, things like hard metal lung disease. I'm throwing a lot of terms around, but basically just to say that there are some this is which we really can treat. If we catch it early while it's still inflammatory, we can put people on medication to dampen down the immune system, remove them from exposure, and potentially reverse disease. Some things like silicone coal dust, we can't reverse. Once there's scarring there, the scarring is there. But there are still things we can do. There are clinical trials looking at drugs that can potentially slow down progression of these diseases. And also there are things that we can do in terms of removing from exposure and giving workers guidance about kind of how best to keep themselves as healthy as possible. And people who have really, really severe disease, we think about things like lung transplant. And obviously, that's a last step. But again, there's an option to improve quality of life. People are really, really sick. And so it's not just you have this lung disease, go away, we're done. There is more that can be done. And it's important to have that conversation. It's not always a one-time visit and then you go back to your general pulmonologist. Sometimes it really is that lifetime relationship. We work at trying to get you feeling as good as you can. But there are options. This is not all doom and gloom. That's great. One area I want to ask you about is 
the home exposure of individuals with the exposure to the things that work, can they bring things home? Like since this is directed at patients and families, should the families worry about their own exposure, like secondhand exposure, like we talk about smoke, secondhand exposure, should the families worry about secondhand exposure from a family member who works in a factory exposed to a certain substance? Yeah. So in the olden days, which weren't really about olden at all, we used to worry about that a lot. So back in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s with asbestos, we saw a lot of what we call secondhand exposure. Workers who worked in the factory all day exposed to asbestos and then wore their work clothes home and often their wives or their partners would wash those clothes and be exposed to fiber dust that way. Now with current practices, that's less of a concern, but we still really recommend that you do not wear your work clothes home. If you're working in a job where you're exposed to things like asbestos or beryllium or coal dust, that you kind of either get changed before you leave work or get changed in the garage and wash your clothes, not separately, but again, wash them straight away. What you don't want to do is bring home that dusty, dirty overall into the house itself. Mm, that's great advice, I think, because... Still, your clothes could be carriers of uh, whatever you're exposed to at work. So uh, maybe we have some time to go over specific occupational lung diseases. And I'd like to go over a couple of maybe traditional ones and some yeah. of the newer ones. You know, some of the things that what comes to mind as traditional exposures like coal and silica. You know, any thoughts on those and you know, what people can do in that uh, figure that know that they're happening and what to do about them. Yeah. So with, with coal and silica, we've seen a real rise in cases over the past probably 10 years or so. I think it's probably made the news people are probably aware of, but especially in West Virginia and Kentucky, there's been a big rise again in the cases of black lung, the most severe form called progressive massive fibrosis or PMF. Again, it's hard to know exactly what's triggering that, but there are a lot of concerns about that, the fact that maybe due to, again, changes of how we mine coal, changes in the kind of coal that's being mined, and changes in the mine size and kind of how workers are being screened. So again, we think about coal workers in pneumoconiosis, we really think that screening is really important, but also that worker protections are really important. And especially with coal, it's not really the PPE, it's the engineering controls, it's things that the companies are doing to keep workers safe that are really important there. Because it's really hard to wear the right kind of PPE in a hot, dusty, dirty, narrow coal mine. You just can't move around. So engineering controls are really important there and really key. Silicosis is something we actually really worry about now, and engineered stone silicosis is kind of the newest and most concerning form. We've talked about this before, but basically in 2018, 2019, we saw an outbreak of silicosis among younger workers who were all working with these kitchen countertops. So engineered stone is basically a composite product made up of quartz and basically crystalline silica. It's like marble, so when you cut it and grind it, you can make beautiful kitchen countertops that last a long time and are hard and affordable. But when you cut it and grind it, you also release large quantities of silica into the air. And workers who weren't aware of this were being exposed and developing pretty severe disease. Again, recognising that risk, we're now moving to try and prevent it. But it's really important to recognise that silicosis and coal workers and haven't gone away. They're still around and workers are still exposed. Yeah, that's great. And some other types of occupational lung disease are the ones uh, that work through uh, triggering our immune system, like, you know, beryllium and, uh, you know, hard uh, metal uh, lung disease. Can you tell us a couple of things about those? Yeah. Yes. So I sort of mentioned those earlier, but both beryllium and hard metal are sort of different occupational lung diseases. They're occupational lung diseases which are triggered by the exposure, which basically turns on the immune system and kind of activates a switch. And it means that workers are then predisposed to developing sort of this autoimmune inflammation triggered by the exposure to these compounds. For chronic brilliant disease, their compound is brilliant. And that's used mostly in aerospace engineering and manufacturing. 
we think about hard metal, it's exposure to cobalt. So workers who are using, again, hard metal cutting blades potentially exposed to that. And both these diseases basically cause this inflammation in the lungs, which is treatable and reversible, but again, needs to be captured and caught early. With beryllium, we screen for beryllium, and we look pretty carefully for that. We can't screen right now for hard metal lung disease, so it's important the workers who are exposed to that, again, wear PPE, have really good engineering controls. And if they have symptoms, again, if they seek help and get advice about that. Yes, wonderful. And then you talked briefly about newer types of exposure. You mentioned, we mentioned um, engineered uh, stone, but also I think we and I have talked before this about like the popcorn, you know, uh, mm. manufacturing and stuff. Can you talk about these newer ways people are getting uh, their lungs injured? Yeah. So when you think about occupational exposure, it's always tempting to think about historic stuff, right? But the reality is that we're seeing new exposures all the time. Popcorn lung was something which came up, again, workers who are working with popcorn flavorings, diacetyl compounds, the artificial butter flavoring, were developing something called bronchial acid obliterans, a chronic lung disease. And that was picked up by workers for NIOSH, who then again did investigation and found that it really was the flavorings that were causing the problems. Similarly, we think about kind of the newer exposures, we think about things like World Trade Center workers, like wildfire smoke and firefighters. I spent a lot of my time doing research looking at occupational exposure to air pollution. And so when you think about exposures, often there are things that have been around for a long time that we're really only just now recognizing can cause disease. Yeah, so I'm intrigued by that, you know, and I talked about it as well separately, is the environmental exposure, because, you know, we always think of occupational exposure, you go into a factory, a closed setting, and then you get exposed to something. But now you're expanding the definition, or in general, we're expanding the definition into, if you're a firefighter, if you're like a worker on the road, like you get exposed to diesel exhaust. So this is an intriguing way of looking at environmental exposure as occupational exposure, something I think I didn't think of before. Yeah, I mean, the environment where you work in really has a huge impact. And the environment you work in isn't just what you're doing, but it really is truly the environment in which you work. If you think about outdoor workers, so yeah, like you mentioned, people who work near the roadside, drivers, firefighters, even people like agricultural workers who work out in the field, their environment is really outdoors. And outdoors is not always a healthy place to be. Exposure to air pollution can cause significant health problems. And we know that for a lot of these workers, they're exposed to more air pollution than someone who's sitting sort of inside in an office because they're out there all day with no filtration. So when you have worsening air quality, things like wildfires or just dusty, dirty days, these workers really feel that impact the most. So you mentioned office workers, and you know sometimes we hear about uh, even those are not immune from occupational exposure. What are your thoughts on the sick building syndrome that we hear about off, uh, off and on? So things like mold exposure in the office can be significant. I think people often worry about it, but when you're thinking about true sick building syndrome, really it's not just the one worker who's sick, but a lot of workers who are sick. So as an occupational pulmonologist, when I'm thinking about that sort of thing, I'm really looking for clustering. Not just one person, but multiple people who are exposed. Kind of more commonly, actually, probably something which is very preventable is things like scent exposure in the office. So I talked about occupational asthma. So asthma which is made worse by work. The most common exposure by far in the workplace is actually scents and perfumes. And they can cause a lot of, again, worsening asthma control for a lot of people, even who don't have classic occupational asthma. So the office is not always a safe place, you're right. But the exposures are different. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, anything else you'd like to add? This has been really a great uh, tour and overview. It looks like each one of these we could have a separate podcast about, but I think I appreciate you giving us an overview of all these exposures and a general approach to them and how to suspect them. Anything else you'd like to add? I think just to say that occupational exposures aren't going away. 
And it's important to still think about it as doctors, but also as patients, it's really important to think about, again, how can you make your work, work as safe as possible? And also, if your work isn't safe, should you see a doctor and should you get screened? Because like I mentioned, screening really lets us catch things early, potentially prevent severe disease and remove you from exposure and keep you healthy for longer. Wonderful. I really appreciate you expanding our horizons really today about occupational lung disease. Let me just try to close with a few uh, takeaway points. One is, as you pointed out, is occupational lung disease is still around. You know, while we like to think that this is a thing of the past, it's still around. The traditional ones, things like coal and silica are still around, but also new ones are popping up, like, you know, literally popcorn and engineered uh, stone silicosis. And the one really I was intrigued by the most is that the environmental exposure as occupational exposure, depending on your occupation, if you work outside all the time around fires or roads or agricultural areas, and you could be exposed to things that really constitute occupational exposure. And uh, you mentioned, I think the important thing is to suspect it and don't ignore your symptoms. Like if you, even though you're healthy, if you have a a nagging cough, you don't know what's causing it, or shortness of breath, that is no good explanation for it. Don't just ignore it, but see your physician and uh, try to, to see if it's related to occupational lung exposure. And if unsure, always the best thing is to just see your doctor, because then they can recommend either removal from the exposure or maybe other treatments that may help you down the line. Is that fair? Exactly. There's nothing wrong with, again, getting it checked out. And maybe nothing, but it's helpful to know that it's nothing rather than assuming it's nothing and finding out it was something five, ten years down the line. The classic better safe than sorry kind of thing with these things. So thank you so much, Dr. McMurdo, for sharing your insights with us. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. Again, this is your host, Ryan Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And my guest was Dr. Maeve McMurdo who directs our Occupational Lung Disease Program, uh, which was the topic of our conversation today. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at MD. Thank you. <music>